The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. You see there in the, uh, in the bulletin and there on the screen, they were opening to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, that's in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 is on page 961. So open with me there to 1 Corinthians. And as you're doing that, I just want to kind of share a word of context uh, because, uh, yes, last week was Easter uh, and that was wonderful. It was wonderful to, to see everyone and to sing together. Um, and I don't want to uh, just leave that theme and jump right back into Genesis uh, because we would actually only be in Genesis for one week because then we're going to take a two-week pause. So we're going to return to Genesis uh, the first Sunday of May. And uh, Lord willing, I'm charting just three more sermons in our uh, studies of the generations of grace, the life of uh, Isaac and Jacob. So just three more sermons there. And then after that, we're, we're going to turn to a, a short series uh, that we called Hard Questions, uh, where the elders are submitting to me. And that means that you could potentially submit to the elders to submit to me uh, hard questions that we're faced with, that uh, we need to search out uh, the scriptures uh, for answers to those questions. We're going to do a short series of that, Hard Questions, and then spend the rest of the summer in the book of Psalms, and then we're going to start a new sermon series, a new uh, exposition in the Gospel of Luke in the fall. So Luke is our next extended sermon series, but along the way we're going to take stops in uh, finish Genesis, hard questions, Psalms, and end up in Luke this fall. So, uh, Lord willing... We have a plan for a steady diet of Bible teaching here at Edgington, and that is uh, our plan as, uh, as we've made it, and we pray God uh, to bless it, if indeed it's agreeable to Him. So now, I didn't want to just leave Easter alone, but taking the opportunity to kind of follow up on Easter, reminding ourselves that every Sunday is, in one sense, Easter Sunday, because we are an Easter people of the resurrection, and every Lord's Day is Resurrection Sunday. I wanted to take the time... Uh, to, to explore from the Scriptures uh, a, a matter of Jesus' resurrection that uh, is deservedly given attention on Easter, but we took another route this Easter, a kind of a more apologetic route, defending the historical reality of the resurrection. Uh, today, I wanted to take the opportunity to, to kind of ask and uh, seek out from the Scriptures some answers to questions about the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be thinking this morning about resurrection and the reality of the physicality of that resurrection of Jesus' own body because we believe that Jesus was raised in the same body with which he lived and died. And in his resurrection body, there is some transformation that takes place. And there's questions about that. And there's curiosities about that. I want to explore those things uh, with you. There are unique properties of the resurrected body of Jesus. The disciples experienced this, and they had never encountered a resurrected body before. And I say that distinct from the resurrections of, say, Lazarus, because I think it's appropriate to say that Lazarus, in John chapter 11, is resuscitated, not resurrected. And same with Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, a little girl who is uh, raised from the dead. She is resuscitated, I think we would say, not resurrected. Jesus is the resurrected one. He is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus' power over death itself displayed in his resurrection. And when we say that, we remind ourselves that when Jesus is raised, 
He is not raised some kind of phantom or ghost. There are those who think that, of course. Jesus is not some kind of spiritual apparition or appearance of some spirit being, but he is rather raised physically in a physical body. And if you try to make sense of all of that, well, you join the church in trying to understand what does that mean and how do we understand it. And uh, you would be joining the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, who gives, in 1 Corinthians 15, the most concise explanation about resurrection in the whole Bible. So if you're interested in resurrection, thematically, as a teaching, as a doctrine, as an experience, 1 Corinthians 15 is the place to go in all the Bible. So we're going to spend time there, but also in a few other places in the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is making sense of this whole resurrection business. And this matters because it matters about Jesus' resurrection. And it also matters for your resurrection. So if you intend to be a resurrected person, and I hope you do, you need to know what does that mean and what's that going to look like? Well, Paul tells you in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you've got your Bible open there, let's pray together and we'll ask the blessing of the Spirit upon uh, the Word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, You who gave this Word by Your breathed out voice as the Spirit was sent forth to record without error this revelation, we pray, Lord, that You would send upon us that same Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words without error, that that same Spirit might rest upon our minds, that we might receive in truth what You say, and that we would receive inwardly of soul and of heart the true confession that what this Word teaches is the very truth by which we live. So, Father, would You please bless Your Word to Your people today in the reading and proclamation and application of it. Would You please bless us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now, hear the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read selectively now uh, a few places. I'm not going to read the entire uh, chapter. Actually, you know what? Yes, I am. (laughs) Why? Well, it's good for us. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 15, at verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, And that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what does it mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. For there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown in per is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, imperishable, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So keep your Bible open there in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be looking in 1 Corinthians 15. We're also going to be going into the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John because we want to think this morning about Jesus' resurrected body. It is, it is so oftentimes easily the case that we speak about Jesus' resurrection and the reality of it and the application of the benefit of His resurrection to us. And when we speak about all of those things, uh, we leave other practical questions unaddressed because we want to make sure we're saying the most important thing. Christ is raised. We too will be raised in Him and with Him for the forgiveness of our sins and our eternal life in Him. Yes and amen. But there's still a lot of questions to ask, right? Resurrected bodies, what are those like, right? That's, that's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this really happens in three sections in 1 Corinthians 15, and you kind of notice them as he changes uh, the theme in the midst of the grand subject. In verses 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul is defending the reality of the resurrection. He says, look, I deliver to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins, He was buried, and He was raised, that people saw Him. It's a true, verifiable fact. You should believe it. Christ is raised. That's the first 11 verses, defending the reality of the resurrection. This is the gospel we preach, the gospel of the resurrected Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Then, in verses 12 to 34, he's addressing a reality because the Apostle Paul is speaking to a Greek culture that didn't believe in this whole resurrection business. People die and then they're dead, is what the Greek culture says. And to all the sophistication of their Greek philosophy, they would say, you know, we know that this isn't how this works. And the Apostle Paul says, oh, if it's not true that nobody can be raised from the dead, then we should follow the logic and say, if nobody can be raised, then that means Christ couldn't have been raised, and if Christ couldn't have been raised, what is true? If it's not true, that he isn't raised. Do you follow this logic then? In verses 12 through 34, he gives this masterful argument to say, okay, what's on the table as a reality if Jesus isn't raised? And he lists off all these number of things. He says, your faith is in vain. Our preaching is worthless. All of our efforts as Christians are totally foolish. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then the Christians who believe that lie, if it's not true, are the most foolish people who have ever lived in world history. Do you know, it's oftentimes the case that, especially around Easter, people want to talk about these things in the History Channel and whatnot, and they say, well, if we were to find the grave of Jesus, exhume the grave, and there was a body in the grave, should the Christian faith still exist? And people say, well, yeah, it should, because it's still a good idea. To which the Apostle Paul would say, if you can exhume the grave of Jesus and find the body, I'm the first person to quit being a Christian. Because that's how central the resurrection is. And if it's not true, then you would be wasting your time by being here today if it's not true. But he says it is true, 
of course. So all these things are important to know. So that's verses 12 through 34. Then he makes a transition. Look at verse 35. This is the key thing we want to focus on this morning. Question 35, he, he says, the Apostle Paul is a master order, a massive, uh, a massive intellect, wonderful at presenting the argument. He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So he says, now let's ask that question. What about this whole resurrection business? What are those resurrected bodies like? Can you touch them? Can you run fast in a resurrected body? Do you need to eat? Do you need to sleep? What are these resurrected bodies like? That's what he's doing in this section. How does all this resurrection business work anyway? And you'll notice with how he speaks about the reality of the resurrection, he says that there is a, a man of dust. He's speaking about Adam. Man who is created from the dust. There is the man of dust, the first Adam. And then there is a man from heaven, not created, but an eternal son of God. The man from heaven, the last Adam, the true Adam. There is the first Adam and the last Adam, the man from dust and the man from heaven. We die in Adam because of our sins. But if we are in union with the man from heaven, Jesus Christ, we will live in his resurrection. That's what he's talking about here. So when we hear this, again, 1 Corinthians 15 is really the, the, the apex of the doctrine of resurrection in all the Scripture. It's the most important place in all the Bible to articulate what the Christian faith believes about resurrection. It's a very clear but sophisticated argument. It's also airtight. It's wonderful. And as we engage it, we engage it, of course, believing it. We say, Paul, I believe everything that you're saying. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe that as a result of Jesus' resurrection, I will also be raised, but I have a lot of questions about it. I've got a lot of questions about this whole resurrection business and the type of bodies resurrected bodies are like. So we want to engage that. And the good news is, of course, that we can engage it by way of the witness of scriptures because we have these wonderful details. If you want to ask questions about resurrection, you should ask them of the person who's been resurrected. Right? So the types of questions we want to know about, we can go to the scriptures and the record of Jesus' resurrection and hopefully find clues or some answers to this. So think about it this way. On Sunday, when Jesus is raised, He is raised in the same body, and yet it's different. And He says, I've not yet ascended to My Father. So He is resurrected, but not yet ascended. It's going to happen in 40 days, the day of Pentecost. So he's resurrected, but not yet ascended. And he's there in front of the disciples. Let's look at two places. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. So uh, turn left and go back to the Gospel of Luke in Luke 24. And we're going to look at two specific resurrection narratives in the New Testament. And we can see kind of these really intricate mysteries and details and practicalities of what are resurrected bodies like? What happens to your body when you come out of the tomb in a raised body? So, we have these details of a resurrected but not yet ascended Christ. This Jesus who still has a, a, a body that you could see and touch and feel Him in your presence and reach out just like the women clung to Him in the, in, in the garden tomb and they didn't want to let him go. And Jesus says, you've got to let me go because I've got work to do. They could hold him. They could touch him. Physicality, right? You're belaboring this point. A real physical resurrection. You can't touch a spirit. It's disembodied. 
You can't touch a soul because it's ethereal. But you can touch a body, and Jesus has a resurrected body that can be touched. In Luke 24, Luke 24 is this wonderful narrative, both of the resurrection and the details of the road to Emmaus, starting at verse 13 in Luke 24. And essentially the details of Luke 24, 13 and following on the road to Emmaus is that there are two disciples, not of the twelve, but two who had followed Jesus, and Jesus joins them on the road and starts walking along with them. You can see in verse 15 that Jesus joins them. Verse 15 says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, drew near and went with them. Took a stroll to Emmaus with these two fellows. The resurrected Christ is walking on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples. And as the text gives us these details in verse 16, they didn't know it was him. And you might say, well, why not? To which I would say, that's a great question, right? That's what we're talking about. Isn't it fascinating that the resurrected Christ could be in the very presence of those who claim to trust in him, and they didn't even know it was him? They, they're looking at him, and they don't know that it's him, even though he walked for miles with them. He's very much like, for example, in John chapter 20. Do you remember Jesus is raised and, and Mary at first doesn't recognize him? John chapter 20 actually records that Mary thinks that the resurrected Jesus is the gardener. Like, not some majestic, heavenly adorned, bright shining garden, but the fellow who's just clipping the roses. Right? She mistakes the resurrected Christ for the guy who's trimming the bushes. Because to look at him from Mary's eyes at that moment, was kind of, you know, just a guy. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus, just a guy, right? Maybe she's so overcome with grief, she doesn't understand. Jesus is walking with these fellows, gets to Emmaus in verse 30, he breaks bread with them in verse 30, and then they recognize him. Verse 28 says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Oh, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he broke bread. He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes, verse 31, were opened. They recognized him. It's not the case that they couldn't see beforehand, but that the visibility of what they could see was somehow veiled by God's Spirit so that the person that was in front of them to them was just a guy, but then the veils of their eyes were lifted and they saw the resurrected Christ. And then look what happened. He vanishes. The same body that was walking on the road suddenly just goes away. And you might say, well, that, that's quite remarkable, isn't it? He vanishes. And the people say, oh my goodness, verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed. So a body that can walk and talk and break bread is a body that can be unrecognizable and vanish. And both of these things are true at the same time. It's pretty remarkable, don't you think, this resurrection body of Jesus? He walks around, talks and eats, and yet he's imperceptible and vanishes. If that's interesting, turn with me to John chapter 20 because we see another Interesting one, and perhaps probably the most famous of the uh, post-resurrection narratives that the disciples encounter, particularly Thomas. Particularly Thomas. Turn to John chapter 20. Pick up from verse 19, John chapter 20. Again, Christ is raised. He's walking around Jerusalem, <laughs> right? He's talking with people. He's going on short hikes to Emmaus. But that first 
Easter morning, the day passes and then it's evening. John chapter 20 and verse 19 says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked. John gives you that detail on purpose. Pay attention to that. It says the doors are locked. When the disciples, who were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. And when they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, and they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it was withheld. And of course, Thomas isn't there. And they say, Well, Thomas, we saw him, right? And Thomas, who gets the moniker of Doubting Thomas, says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I can't touch him, if I can't put my hands, then I, I won't believe that. Oh, we find these details. He says, no, no, no. See my hands inside. So, verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said, We have seen him. Right? Visibility. He's there in physicality. We saw him. He invited us to touch his hands and see his side. Verse 25 says, So the other disciples said, We have seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see in his hands and the marks of his nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, on the Lord's Day again, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, John wants you to know. Locked doors, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas, look, see for yourself. And John wants you to know that Jesus showed up in both of these occasions seemingly, if we could kind of read between the lines and understand, gained access through a locked door? You might say, like, metaphysically, bodies can't pass through locked doors. So what of this resurrection body that has this capacity to pass through locked doors and appear to the disciples in physicality before them but not be restrained by the physicality of a door? The resurrected body of Christ. He says, look, Look. And you know the best detail about what he invites Thomas to do? The text never says that Thomas says, okay, thanks for the invitation, let me touch you. What does it just say? My Lord and my God. Because the point isn't necessarily the need of the evidence. The point is the reality of the resurrection. He is very there before him. So, again, physicality, metaphysical properties of resurrected body to pass through doors. See me, I'm right here, touch me, and yet I can also disappear, right? How do you make sense of all of this? As we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, you can understand why the question is being asked there in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, when the Apostle Paul says, well, let's respond to the question, how does this work? Bodies raising. What kind of body is that? As we ask of Jesus, what kind of body is it that can be visible and yet disappear? What kind of body is it that can be seen and yet not perceived, can pass through locked doors and yet be touched? What is this resurrection body? Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 and following, that there are two kinds of bodies. He says specifically at verse 42 and following, there's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And when he says natural body, he means 
this body that you presently occupy. The word in Greek there is psychikos, where we get the word psychology from, but it's the physicality of this particular body. It's natural. It's this natural body. But in contrast to the natural body, there is the spiritual body. Pneumaticos in Greek. Psychikos, the natural body. Pneumaticos. If you think pneumatic tools, air, spirit, a spiritual body. Pneumaticos. A totally different kind of body. Natural spiritual. And the way Paul argues this is he says, you know, this might be remarkable, but you know that this is true because you see it every season. Right? When you, when you plant a seed. Paul explains that the seed is planted and what comes forth from the planted seed is like the seed, but different. Right? But you've got to plant it. It's got to die, Paul says. The seed dies, and what comes forth is like that seed and yet of a different kind. The watermelon seed goes in the ground, and what comes forth from the watermelon, the vine, and the fruit doesn't look the same as that seed, but it is from that seed. In other words, Paul is saying you don't plant corn and get eggplant. You know that. Right? He says, this is sensible. We totally understand this. And the resurrection of the body works the same way. You plant the natural body, and what proceeds is the spiritual body. And the Spirit of God discerns what it creates. The Spirit of God discerns what it creates. That's why Mary and the disciples can't recognize Him. Because Jesus' spiritual body, as it were, is spiritually discerned, and until the Spirit of God lifts the veils from the visible sight of Mary and the disciples, they see someone, but they can't see Jesus until the Spirit discerns what the Spirit creates, lifts the veils, and they say, My Lord, it was You the whole time. And the way Paul argues all of this resurrection of Christ uh, argument in the resurrection of the body is he says the way you should expect this to work is that Jesus' resurrection is what he calls the first fruit of a resurrection harvest. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of a harvest in 1 Corinthians 15. And what he means by that is that the first Easter morning began a season of resurrection harvest. Continuing the agrarian metaphor, right? You plant the seed, you harvest the grain. And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of the resurrection harvest that will happen. And this is very important for, for Paul because the reason why he's saying it this way is because he's explaining that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of a new age that is breaking into this created order where the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ is in breaking into this created order by way of Jesus' resurrection that our resurrections will continue to be a part of this one episode of resurrection harvest, right? So the way Paul says harvest is different from the way we talk about harvest. We talk about annual harvests. We say 2012 was a great year. Prices were great. The rain was good. That was a good harvest. But the way the Bible says harvest means the entirety of the resurrection of 
bodies that will be raised. One resurrection. Jesus is the first fruit of resurrection harvest that you will join in through Him. When you are raised from the dead, you are then a part of the resurrection harvest that was inaugurated that first Easter morning is what Paul is saying. Not two episodes, not two separate things, but one episode spread across time. Jesus' resurrection is not some kind of happy ending. It is the happy new beginning of the end times breaking into the created order, the eternal age to come. So too you will be, follow with me now, planted. Uh, English Puritans used to say the primary duty of a pastor is to help his people die well. You will be planted in the ground. You, your body, this part of who you are will be planted and one day you will rise. How do you know? Because that's what happened to Jesus. The reason why it's so important that you believe in the physicality of the resurrection of Jesus is because if you don't believe that, then you shouldn't expect it to happen to you. But the things that are true of Jesus are true of you because you are in union with Him. So when you die, you will also rise because when Christ died, He rose and you will rise in Christ on the last day is what Paul is saying here. Jesus' resurrection matters because you will experience a resurrection in Him. The same kind of resurrection that Jesus was raised in, you will be raised as well. Hear me very clearly. You as a Christian believer, will not find an eternal hope in some kind of disembodied state of ethereal existence of floating on a cloud somewhere. The final state of your eternal existence is physical, bodily, a resurrected body. I try to be very clear about this, especially you know, in funerals and whatnot when I tell people, you know, heaven is not your final destination as a Christian. Did you know that? Heaven is not your final resting place. Heaven is what we call the intermediate state where your disembodied soul awaits the return of Jesus Christ who when He returns, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised in new bodies joined to those eternal souls and you will occupy the new heavens and new earth in a new physical resurrected body for all eternity. That's what Paul is saying. And Jesus' resurrection matters because his resurrection is the type of resurrection that you will experience as well. Physicality. So, the clues that we get about these resurrected bodies, we start thinking about this and people ask all kinds of questions. You know, what age will I be? What outward display of who I am will be true of all eternity? Will I be able to play golf? Will I shoot good scores when I play golf? Will I be able to garden in the new heavens and new earth? Will I be able to ride my bike? What will I, you know, what will I do? And you know what I have is the answer to the question? You ready? I don't know. Wasn't that profound? The profundity exceeds capacity. I don't know. You know why? Because Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15, there at the end, I tell you a mystery. Verse 51. I tell you a mystery. There's lots that I don't know. But what I do know is that one day you will die. You will be planted, or the Bible says you will fall asleep in Christ. 
And the reason why we call it falling asleep in Christ is because you wake up from sleep. You go to sleep and you wake up. So for the Christian, the experience of death is sleep because we wake from sleep. And when Christ returns and the dead in Christ are raised, Paul says this marvelous reality happened. The trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ will be raised. And that which was sown perishable is raised imperishable. That which is sown mortal is raised in immortality. That which is raised in defeat is is raised in victory. Sown in defeat, raised in victory. This is what is happening in verse 54. He says, when all this happens... When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, what? Death is swallowed up in victory. The last enemy to be defeated is death by Christ's own resurrection. We are raised in Him with a new resurrected body. That's what Paul knows. So that's what we should major on. That doesn't mean we won't have fun asking the questions, you know. Can I trip and skin my knee in the new heavens and new earth? Again, what's the answer? I don't know. But what do you know? What you know is that in Jesus Christ you will be raised with Him. And what that means, friends, very importantly, now, yes, I'm going to land this plane here. You walk, you walk through this fallen world just like I do. With all of its experiences, And so what is your hope in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of loss, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of cancer diagnoses, in the midst of your failing body? Because this natural body wasn't meant to live forever. Your resurrected body will live forever, but you don't have that one yet. This shell, this this outer part of who we are is breaking down. What is most true in the doctor's office when you get the bad news? What is most true at the graveside in the midst of loss? What is most true in the midst of tragedy? This, Paul says, Christ is risen and I am risen in Him. Our hope is a resurrection hope. Christ's resurrection means that we who are united to Christ will be united with Him and share in His resurrected glory. His resurrection, His ascension, and His heavenly glory. So, Christian believer, you should be well equipped to answer the question what your hope is what your eternal hope is, and the answer is, He is risen. And I am risen with Him. Believe that with all of your heart. Let's pray. Great God, we rejoice in the promises of the Gospel today, and we pray that You would strengthen us in hope and strengthen us in faith and strengthen us in courage to believe all that Your Word says and live in light of that truth with courage. So, Father, bless Your people today. Through Your Word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.